Making a habit of jotting down notes when experiences or feelings seemed important enough to put down on paper, his life soon became bound to his work. Similar to a number of writers, the lines between his life and the life of the characters in his fiction became blurred. The people he wrote about, which largely included himself, helped make the reading experience very intimate, relatable, and ultimately fascinating. A personality through and through, and despite doing questionable and or unforgivable acts on occasion, he exuded a hypnotic type of charm, which more often than not let him off the hook. He once noted, I didn't have the two top things, great animal magnetism or money. I had the two second things though, good looks and intelligence, so I always got the top girl. Perhaps an understatement, but life was fast and reckless for this one, ending in a disaster of his own making, but also leaving us with inspiring and colorful writings that are held to this day. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, the daring, and greatness. I'm your host, Jason and Moa Harden, and on this episode, we explore the life of F. Scott Fitzgerald and his most famous novel, The Great Gatsby. It is sadder to find the past again and to find it inadequate to the present than it is to have it elude you and remain forever a harmonious conception of memory." End quote. He was born Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald on September 24, 1896 in St. Paul, Minnesota into a middle-class Catholic family. He was named after a distant cousin who, in 1814, wrote the lyrics to none other than the American national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. Indeed, with a name to live up to, Fitzgerald set out to conquer the world. Fast forward to 1922, the year the party really began. That year, Francis and his wife Zelda decided to visit New York as soon as their newly born baby daughter was deemed old enough to be left with family in St. Paul, Minnesota, the place where Zelda had given birth. Francis Scott Fitzgerald, called Scotty, was five months old at the time. Upon their arrival in the Big Apple, they submerged themselves in one continuous party that would last from mid-March until the beginning of April. His second novel, The Beautiful and the Damned, was published that same year. It sold well, roughly 50,000 units, but considering his debut novel, This Side of Paradise, had sold 40,000 in its first year, it didn't exactly live up to what he had hoped or anticipated. And by the time the second book was published, Scribner's, his publishing house, had advanced him $5,643, a sum that exceeds $100,000 in today's money. And despite being deemed to be a success on the rise, Fitzgerald kept minute track of his debt and did his best to produce and sell enough short stories to keep his numbers in the black. After a couple of wild and crazy weeks in New York City, he heads back to St. Paul and immediately settles into the task of selecting and revising the stories for his next book of short stories. Tales of the Jazz Age was published in September of 1922. 
As with the short story collection which had followed his debut novel, Flappers and Philosophers, he had to dig deep to find enough stories to fill the book. He put in everything he'd written since the previous volume except Popular Girl and Two for a Cent, and reached back further still for three pieces he had rejected when Flappers and Philosophers was collected, The Camel's Back, Porcelain and Pink, and Mr. Icky. Even though he held a keen eye on big money, he nevertheless wrote and rewrote with care and literary ambition. Even his play, The Vegetable, was written with hope and dedication. Since the previous fall, F. Scott had been working on The Vegetable, a play he first projected two years before. He wrote to his editor, Maxwell Perkins, in January of 1923, the man who, by the way, had discovered him, telling him that he was in the midst of an awfully funny play that's going to make me rich forever. It really is. I'm so damned tired of the feeling that I'm living up to my income. In February, he finished the play and began trying it on various producers. However, he received no interest whatsoever. By the end of May, he had revised it and tried several more places, again with no success. In July came yet another revision, even a tentative name for it, Gabriel's Trombone. However, none of it helped. Then came September 1923. The vegetable had yet again been rejected. And as soon as they were settled in Great Neck in Long Island, where arguably their most extravagant parties took place, he sat down to rewrite it completely for the third time. Then quite a few months later in April, it was finally accepted by Sam Harris and scheduled to go into rehearsal in October. Now in the interim between writing the play and having it rejected, making rewrites which led to more rejections, he had begun rather casually working on a new novel. While The Beautiful and the Damned was doing worse than this side of paradise had, tales of the jazz age did slightly better than flappers and philosophers. Nevertheless, this didn't alter the fact that he needed to write something new, something that would catapult him into the limelight he so desired. What he needed to do was to write the great American novel. He would spend quite a bit of time loafing around, but during that spring of 1923, he played with the idea of a novel about the Middle West and New York in 1885. It will concern less superlative beauties than I run to usually, he wrote Perkins and will be centered on a smaller period of time. It will have a Catholic element. He soon, however, lost interest in this idea and began to have contact with two men who wanted to do his debut novel as a movie with he and Zelda in the leading roles. Now Perkins, the editor, was horrified at the idea, and Fitzgerald tried to reassure him by promising that it would be his first and last appearance positively. Well, that scheme, too came to nothing. If he did indeed loaf around, it was partly because he had exhausted his material, but also partly because of the belief he and Zelda shared that if you were good enough, you not only could live according to the hedonistic code of the twenties, but would probably turn out all the better for doing so. The code of the twenties, which the Fitzgeralds believed in sincerely and conducted their lives according to, revolved very much around the 
ere the desire for unadulterated gaiety on the conviction that youth's a stuff will not endure, and then, duly disillusioned, settle into a resigned old age. Now, if Scott was even inclined for a while to think that he would commit suicide at thirty, though as he gradually moved closer to the date, he settled on fifty, unfortunately, an age he would never see. Back to Great Neck, Long Island, where he would note, I find that I can't live at Great Neck on anything under 36000 a year, and I have to write a lot of rotten stuff that bores me and makes me depressed. But when his friend Louise Brooks protested that no writer needs to live on such a scale, he replied, Well, don't you think, though, that the American millionaires must have had a certain amount of fun out of their money? Think of being able to give a stupendous house party that would go on for days and days with everything that anybody could want to drink and a medical staff in attendance and the biggest jazz orchestras in the city alternating night and day. I must confess that I get a big kick out of all the glittering expensive things. And so the party in Great Neck continued on and on and on and on. He remarked ruefully, It became a habit with many world-weary New Yorkers to pass their weekends at the Fitzgerald House in the country. He and Zelda wrote a set of rules for guests at the Fitzgerald House. Visitors, it said, are requested not to break down doors in search of liquor, even when authorized to do so by the host and hostess. Weekend guests are respectfully notified that the invitations to stay over Monday issued by the host and hostess during the small hours of Sunday morning must not be taken seriously. These rules were only partly a joke due to the fact that a Fitzgerald party was likely to go on and on indefinitely. Now, seeing as a car was not a safe instrument for either him or his wife, the journey to and from Great Neck was always an adventure. According to Max Perkins, Fitzgerald once drove them straight into a pond instead of following the curve of the road because, I quote, it seemed more fun. Now, Zelda was definitely not excluded from these reckless drives as she got herself arrested as the bob-haired bandit. For instance, there was the time she drove slowly out of a side road in front of a car which missed her only due to a heroic effort. And when her passenger asked breathlessly if she had not seen the other car, she said, Oh yes, I saw it. <laughs> Yet somehow, despite their driving and in spite of the law, they always managed the return to Gateway Drive, maybe due to their status and perhaps the color of their skin. In particular, at this time, it was easier for them to find cracks through which to escape the repercussions of their more reckless actions. Now, the following mornings, after their harrowing escapades, it was customary for them to be found sound asleep on the front lawn. Now, his notes during this period consist mainly of December, a series of parties. January, still drunk. April, third anniversary, on the wagon. July, intermittent work on novel. Constant drinking. August, more drinking. This way of living made the task of upholding a household difficult, and, as he said himself, I have never been able to fire a bad servant. 
and I am astonished and impressed by people who can. They apparently had three such servants at Great Neck, servants that deserved to be fired, but were not, and that was adding up. Add the parties and the liquor to the calculations, and you would come to the dizzying sum of $36,000, the equivalent of more than $600,000 in today's money. Now, believe it or not, this is what the couple spent during their first year at Great Neck. And by the end of that summer, he tried to curb his lifestyle and managed to get more work done on the novel. However, in October, his play The Vegetable went into rehearsal and, like many authors, he became fascinated by the process of stage production, spending his days at the theater and his nights revising what seemed not to be going well in rehearsals. Now, the play was the new baby, thus the novel was set aside. His excitement rose to a high point through November. He was delighted with the lead and was sure the play was going to be a great success, the great success he so desperately needed. In the middle of November, the vegetable opened at the Apollo Theater in Atlantic City, and, well, it was a tremendous flop. It was, he wrote, a colossal frost. People left their seats and walked out. People rustled their programs and talked audibly in bored, impatient whispers. After the second act, I wanted to stop the show and say it was all a mistake, but the actors struggled heroically on. There was a fruitless week of patching and revising, and then we gave up and came home. With his tail between his legs, Fitzgerald returned to Great Neck only to be faced with more bad news. He was, to his profound astonishment, $5,000 in debt. Now, he did the only thing he knew to do in these circumstances. He went on the wagon, retired to the large bare room with the oil stove over the garage, and set to work to write himself out of his financial ruin. It took a lot of sweat and blood, often sitting for 12 hours at a time, typing away, but in the months between November and April, he produced 11 stories and managed to earn $17,000. Out of debt, and now he felt he had enough surplus to get back to work on the novel. So that April in 1924, he was ready to get back to what he hoped would be his great American novel. However, before he could get much work done, Zelda suddenly decided that their life in Great Neck was impossible financially and socially. By her demand, they would go to France and live on practically nothing a year. Now, concerning this escape, he wrote that it was one made in order to flee extravagance and clamor, and from all the wild extremes among which we had dwelt for five hectic years, from the tradesmen who laid for us, and the nurse who bullied us, and the couple who kept our house for us, and knew us all too well. We were going to the old world to find a new rhythm for our lives, with the true conviction that we had left our old selves behind forever, and with the capital of just over $7,000. He knew by this time, however, that it would not be easy to shake off their old habits or their old personas, but for the moment they were full of optimism. Like his character Gatsby, Fitzgerald, it could be speculated, wanted to recover something by escaping to France. Most likely it was a desire to return to that moment before everything had become confused and disordered, a return to a certain starting place and the chance for a do-over. 
Once in France, they found temporary housing in the Grimm's Park Hotel at Iyer and immediately began the search for a villa. By June, they had found a satisfactory place to live. It was in St. Raphael, a large and handsome place with extensive gardens called the Villa Marie. And so there they were, settled for the summer. The couple settled into their French phase. They bought a Renault. Fitzgerald grew a mustache and gradually surrendered to the French barber's idea of how his hair should be cut, and they soaked in the sun long hours on the beach. And for a while, things went along so well that F. Scott wrote to Maxwell optimistically, We are idyllically settled here and the novel is going fine. It ought to be done in a month. However, in July, a serious crisis cast a shadow over their lives. When they had first arrived in St. Raphael, they had met a French aviator by the name of Edouard Jossan. He was a dark, romantic fellow with a classically handsome profile and curly black hair. He almost immediately fell deeply and openly in love with Zelda. This was a familiar experience for Fitzgerald, though he never altogether got used to it, but still, he managed. Anyhow, when Zelda began to show an interest in Edouard, well, that was another matter. The affair came to a quick and violent climax by the middle of the month, and apparently, after one or two noisy, undignified scenes set off by Fitzgerald, Edouard departed from St. Raphael, leaving Zelda a long letter in French as well as his photograph. <laughs> Fiery. A month after the crisis, he noted that they were once again close together, and by September that the trouble was clearing away. But long afterwards, he wrote in his notebook, That September 1924, I knew something had happened that could never be repaired. However, by some odd quirk, he found that this crisis scarcely affected his ability to work. It's been a fair summer, he wrote to Maxwell. I've been unhappy, but my work hasn't suffered from it. I am grown at last. That final sentence was one he was to repeat half hopefully and half ironically, for the rest of his life. By August 1924, he was back on the wagon and was getting quite a bit of good work done on the novel. Then in early November, he sent it to Scribner's. It must be noted that he was anxiously revising almost up to the day of publication. He was particularly dissatisfied with chapters 6 and 7. The winter was hard and difficult for him. He was in a state of tension after three months of hard work on his novel, plus the fact that he was still plagued by the unresolved issues concerning what had occurred with Zelda the previous summer. He was in the red financially, as he always was after a strong period of working on a book, so nothing new there. This time around, he'd borrowed to the limit against the expected royalties on Gatsby and still owed an additional three stories, but the novel was still at the forefront of his mind. He shuffled back and forth between the attitudes of his characters when trying to find a title for the book. His first suggestion was, among ash heaps and millionaires. But that soon gave way to The Great Gatsby. Even though he had 
arguably found the title, he still kept experimenting with others which suggested a more satiric attitude toward Gatsby, such as Tremalcio in West Egg. A month later, he returned to the great Gatsby, but by January, he was saying, My heart tells me I should have named it Tremalcio. And on March 25th, two weeks before publication, he cabled, Crazy about title under the red and white and blue. Whatever that means. While he struggled finding the right title, he also kept editing the novel, and as late as February 18, 1925, he cabled Perkins, Hold up Galley 40 for big change. This change involved cutting five or six pages from the heart of the quarrel between Gatsby and Tom and rewriting the whole passage. Now, the reception is what worried him most. He'd simply given his all, committed fully into it, literally put himself in debt and rolled the dice with what some would refer to as blind gusto. Regardless, he understood that he was old enough now, this time, to be judged without qualification for his youth. The success of this particular publication carried a great weight. For one, he was worried about its financial success, which could be of dire consequences for him if the novel failed. More importantly, however, was his longing to be considered good by those whom he respected. Ultimately, it was a test whether or not, in spite of his popularity or the critics' hesitations about his earlier work, he could prove to everyone that he was a good enough novelist to write the great American novel. By the time The Great Gatsby was about to be published, the couple was back in Italy. Now, just before the novel landed in stores on April 10th, they decided to return to Paris, driving north from Marseille in their car. But, as usual, their car, as all of their previous vehicular purchases, was a used one. Well, wouldn't you know, the car broke down, and they were forced to go by train the rest of the way. This meant that on April 10th, they found themselves caught in the south of France. He, his anxiety now beyond all reason, cabled good old Perkins on April 11th, less than 24 hours after publication, asking if there had been any news. Though The Great Gatsby is now considered F. Scott Fitzgerald's finest novel and has become what he always wanted, the great American novel, it still did not meet the expectations he was longing and hoping for. Prior to The Great Gatsby, he had been known as the writer who wrote about young men and young flapper women who danced and drank with flash and flair, an existence where everyone did their best to understand themselves along the way. However, with The Great Gatsby, he had written a novel where the young, handsome college boy took a back seat, took the role of a bystander. The man we follow, the protagonist, is far from that and at fault in several respects. The dream of the youthful jazz age was suddenly in the shadows. Some speculated that he went too far in rewriting his own history, thus moving ahead of his audience, thus this novel suffered from the same growth. Now, established opinion was represented by book critic Lionel Trilling. He wrote, Except once, 
Fitzgerald did not fully realize his powers, but his quality was a great one, and on one occasion in The Great Gatsby, it was as finely crystallized in art as it deserved to be. By October 1925, the novel sold less than 20,000 copies, less than half his debut novel and 30,000 less than half his sophomore novel. The Dial called Gatsby one of the finest of contemporary novels. The Saturday Review said it revealed thoroughly matured craftsmanship and had high occasions of felicitous, almost magic craftsmanship. There were many great reviews of the book, but it didn't manage to take away the sting of the disappointing sales, which was quite the opposite of what he needed. By the time of his death in 1940, suffering his third and fatal heart attack, he died believing his work had been forgotten. His obituary in the New York Times hailed him as a brilliant novelist and cited Gatsby as his greatest work. In the spring of 1942, Mere months after the United States' entrance into World War II, an association of publishing executives created the Council on Books in Wartime with the stated purpose of distributing paperback armed services editions books to combat troops. Literary figures and friends of Fitzgerald had pushed his novel and as a result, The Great Gatsby was one of these paperbacks that were reissued. Within the next several years, 155,000 copies of Gatsby were distributed to U.S. soldiers overseas. The book turned out to be quite popular among beleaguered troops. Unbeknownst to F. Scott, or maybe he was watching when it happened, it was only the beginning of the success that would occur after his death. By 1960, 35 years after the novel's original publication, the book was steadily selling 100,000 copies per year. By 1974, the Great Gatsby had attained its status as a literary masterwork and was deemed a contender for the title of The Great American Novel. As a side note, and since we have two episodes on the gonzo himself, Hunter S. Thompson retyped pages of The Great Gatsby quoting Thompson just to get a feeling of what it was like to write that way. According to Thompson's friend, William Knack, Thompson once retyped the entirety of the novel, so it most definitely became a part of the zeitgeist. As of early 2020, The Great Gatsby had sold almost 30 million copies worldwide and continues to sell an additional 500,000 copies annually, which is a sad yet impressive feat considering that the man who needed to experience this the most is the one left out of the quote-unquote party. <sighs> Let's end this wild ride of an episode with a snippet of F. Scott Fitzgerald's message to his daughter when she began to consider being a writer. What you have felt and thought will, by itself, invent a new style, so that when people talk about style, they are always a little astonished at the newness of it, because they think it is only a style that they are talking about, when what they are talking about is the attempt to express a new idea with such force that it will have the originality of the thought. <laughs> what he said. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, 
Jason and Moa Harden. We Hibbert House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages and be great. House of Words is written and produced by Christo M. Sanchez. Narrated and edited by me, Jason Nemore Harden, and music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Christo M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Harden. 